Looking for a way to level up your coaching and win more? Get better fast with GMS Plus. GMS Plus is your on-demand source for the best, most proven volleyball courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Learn from some of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmsted, Keegan Cook, John Spraw, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson. I've learned a great deal from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. Whether you're trying to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. And we have a Coach Your Brains Out code for listeners. To get 20% off an annual subscription, go to goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter the code CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Welcome back to the Coach Your Brains Out book club. We're now reviewing chapter five. So if you've been following along, you are the slowest reader in the world, but hopefully you have enjoyed the book. This chapter is about practice and practice design. For me, this is probably the most important, exciting chapter to cover practice. I mean, it is to me like why we do what we do. And it's, I mean, not the whole why, there's lots of reasons, but it's, it's, you know, the way we prepare for competition, it's where we spend probably most of our time, right. With our team. Um, and it's when we can have probably the biggest impact on the way our teams perform. So I think it's a really important topic to get into and an exciting one, if you like coaching. So I guess maybe we could start again with you, Andrew, uh, just talking about your practice planning process. I know in the book we talked like John Dunning talked about, uh, you know, writing it on, he's got this, like, uh, some sort of portfolio paper and pen or with a pencil and, other people yeah. are more, I know Harjeev Singh, you know, said you should be really adaptable and you don't need a plan and improvise. Where are you at with practice planning and how do you go about it? Yeah. So we have a, I don't know how many logistics to get into, um, but we have a, this massive Google sheet that like every tab is a practice, but I, I really just like I'll duplicate it and rename it when, once I'm done with one so that I save it and then I can go back and, and look at what we've done over the, over the years. Um, but we have different things feeding into that Google sheet, like surveys from their reported stress levels. Uh, so I just kind of have that in my pocket if I need it. Um, and so there are certain things in the early phase of practice that our players have requested in terms of different sort of pass set um, activities or servant pass activities like thematically that they like. And then I just kind of pull from a menu um, of things that, uh, or, or make up stuff uh, on the fly. And then, and then we get into a lot of multi-court stuff, right? So we're not just planning one court, we're planning three to four courts every day, um, trying to have a balance of, mixing up the roster um, where, you know, we have some really highly ranked players in our, in our team playing with lower ranked players. So we're kind of getting that nice cross pollination for team unity. Um, But then also breaking out uh, more as we get along in practice to, to put more similarly skilled players together. Um, And then I think the focuses tend to be more geared towards the higher end of our, of our lineup. Um, and then, yeah, I'm just pulling, like I said earlier, pulling from that list of themes and concepts that we want to be covering throughout the year. 
um, making, cause it's so easy to just forget like, Oh man, we haven't worked on short serve side out and, uh, you know, on chewing and then defense out of that. Um, so we need to revisit that. And so just having that list is kind of like an important thing for, for us to have that glossary to, to reference. Um, I'm, I'm going kind of, kind of going off here. What? No, you're good. Do you have any more no, I was going to follow questions? up. It's, it sounds like you're really organized, really structured. You talked about taking player feedback and that sometimes tailoring, you know, how you adjust your practice, especially with serving and passing. What if the yeah. feedback doesn't like if they, and maybe this doesn't happen to you, but they give you feedback and it doesn't quite align with what you see perceive as effective practice. How do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah. So probably four times a year we do a big old start stop continue activity which i've probably talked about on other episodes where we get the team in a room they have one whiteboard that says um, practice one whiteboard that says competition and one whiteboard that says team culture and they talk about things that they want to start they want to stop and they want to continue and um, they give us really excellent feedback about things that they're craving in training things they want more of and it's an opportunity to create alignment between the coaching staff and the players. You know, if they, if there's something that they uh, disagree with or they want differently, um, you know, it's an opportunity for us to say, okay, well, this is why we're doing that. And then, you know, give, giving the why is important for them um, or for us to say, yeah, no, we can, we can facilitate that. And, the more often that players have that that control over I guess their destiny or like their time then they're going to be more bought in and um yeah so I doing that activity the start stop continue is super super helpful and we have some really thoughtful players in our program who think about their growth and their development and, and it's really helpful to hear their perspective as okay. much as I want to be like in control of the activities for them to be at the center of it. And even if that doesn't like totally mesh with, um, you know, training principles that I think are more beneficial, like if they are having their hand on it, that's probably a bigger deal than Hmm. making sure it's like totally sound with CLA or (laughs) anything like that. Yeah. That's great. I can see how it really helps with motivation. And just, yeah, for them feeling like they have a voice uh, goes a long way with yeah. just relationship building and their, their buy into the program. So it's really cool exercise. Yeah, just to feel heard. Yeah. Nils, how about you? What's your practice planning process, uh, especially when you're overwhelmed and short on time? And how do you, how do you make sure you, you're efficient with your time? Yeah uh i it's been it's been actually pretty interesting to watch it evolve uh, even this just this season um it has been i was trying to because before that i was volunteering at uh at ku with that staff and so i wasn't necessarily in charge of the full picture and the full programming it was just kind of some ideas for my section of what was going on um which was fun to engage with but i didn't necessarily have that full architecture of like the plan and what we wanted to accomplish. It was just my little piece. And so before that, it was, it's, it's been a while since I've had that and now I'm at a different level. So when I first 
came in there for our preseason, um, I went back and looked at my, my notes. So my processes, I just have like a, a, a moleskin, one of those big, bigger moleskin notebooks. Uh, and I get one of those for the season. And that's usually my practice plan, my, my meetings, like that's all just kind of handwritten. I like the idea of handwriting stuff with pens and notes and, and, um, and pencils. And then at some point I'll go back and, and kind of digitize it in, into sheets of what worked and what didn't just kind of going through that. Uh, so for my preseason, it was a, it was a complete mess. It felt like I was able to practice plan like one day. Cause we had a couple different blocks and I didn't know exactly what the team was going to need. I didn't know exactly what culture pieces we were going to implement and what was going to stick or resonate. Um, so it just felt like full survival mode. I actually just went back and looked at my notes for that two week period moving into the preseason. And there's essentially like no notes. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what I, what I was doing at that time. Uh, and then as we've gone, my notes have gotten more detailed as far as like, I'll, I'll write it down onto my, into my notebook. Uh, I'll put it up from there onto the whiteboard. The whiteboard goes out into practice, whatever notes go on the whiteboard will then make their way back into my notebook, uh, afterward on some sort of reflection if I need to. And, uh, the process of going from my notebook onto the whiteboard, oftentimes it'll change too. Cause, uh, usually about an hour or two before practice, the staff comes in and we will bounce ideas off of one another based on what we've seen in games, what we want to do. They try to come in with ideas. So it's very, right now it's very organic. It's, 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 you know, we're looking maybe two days, three days ahead to implement what we need to change. Um, we're in a phase, this team is in an interesting phase where I kind of say it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole where if one day we're working like on server receive and, and talking about that. And then the next day we, we lighten the load on server receive because we feel like we made the progress and we want to move on to some sort of six on six thing in transition. Then once we get into a game, it's like, oh, our server receive was completely out of, out of sorts. And they weren't able to hold on to the server receive because we didn't work on it the day before or, uh, before the, the the day of or something like that so it seems very much like whatever we work on sticks for the game but we can only do one or two things and whatever else we've worked on has slowly either completely fallen out or very slowly progressed forward it's been a, an interesting challenge so we're just kind of like okay what mold do we want to whack for this upcoming game what do we think is going to be the most important and we still have to get all of our fundamental servant pass set just basic offense serving it's 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 been a very interesting challenge. Yeah. What you said about the, uh, the going from writing on paper to transcribing to the whiteboard and how there's adjustments there. I, I think I knew this, but you saying it made me realize just how uh, maybe one of the multiple benefits of a whiteboard is one, right? The players get to see the practice plan, but two, that process of not just writing your plan once and then showing up and okay, here's the plan, but you know, going over it again, like really questioning when you put it on the board, is this what I wanted? Or like kind of makes you rethink it, question it, or even just understand it more deeply. Like, you know, okay, now, you know, I'm rethinking, recalling why I plan this, why I want to do this and just have a better sense on how to execute it. So I guess it's just another like sale to people who don't use a whiteboard, which I think it's pretty common now. That might be another, uh, another benefit that I hadn't considered. Billy, how about you? What's, what's practice planning looking like for you? Yep, I'll probably have a focus of the day and all the the games and the labs, the warmups will kind of float around that. Um, I have a pretty uh, structure that I usually like every practice kind of follows this, like as far as, you know, the warm up, the whiteboard, the lab, the games, um, and then I'll kind of input in that. 
my process is usually write a little too much and then take out some of the stuff, usually some of the drills towards the beginning. Um, I think for me having fewer drills is better and I usually overwrite it. So my second draft is kind of eliminating some stuff. Um, as far as how strict I am to that, like I have, it usually comes out to, I don't write the times down, but I kind of know this is about the space of two hours, but there's always stuff that pops up, um, stuff we want to spend more time on stuff. We add girls don't show up. So you have to make some adjustments. Um, so I have an outline, but you know, we are flexible, uh, when it comes to practice. And like I was, I did a, a group of four the other day and, you know, that one I had stuff planned, but I still showed up and kind of talked about what they wanted to work on. Um, so, you know, I have a script, but we also uh, imp improvise. What do you guys think of the idea of coming in just totally open slate and just getting a feel for the day and improvising and not having that more structured plan and just kind of riffing off, like however this one goes, like, I guess more like, like jazz, uh, do you think that could be an effective way? It, it, it seems not a very common way coaches will coach. I think that's probably pretty effective if you have a, a small number of players. Um, but if you have 15 mm. plus, I would imagine that's really challenging. Uh, you would probably hear like the dominant voices unless you were really diplomatic about saying, hey, Frosh you know, what do you want to do today? Hey, seniors, what do you guys want to do today? Mm -hmm. um, what do you guys think? I think the, uh, I think, yeah, man, I think it's, I think it's fine. And if you have a lot of experience, you can do that. Sometimes for me, the problem comes when I'm not having like paired up teams in advance. And, you know, sometimes it gets kind of messy, like saying, okay, let's go. You go sit on that side and you being an outside hitter on that side, you know, so just to like save time. Sometimes it helps to have some lineups ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always really impressed if anybody can do that. I feel like I'm not that great at um, at coming in dead cold. I definitely, I'll, I'll adjust little things here and there, but that ability to, to go in cold is just like, wow, yeah, congratulations. I can't think quite like that. Or I feel like when I have done that, it has not been productive. Yeah, yeah, I think there's probably some, like with anything, there's some balance point where if you're, like way too by the book and you know you have to stick to the time and the plan right you're too rigid or if you're just coming in like loosey-goosey you're wasting time or you're not as efficient but to find that right bandwidth where you can have some structure have a plan but be willing to improvise and adjust and even like within the activity making the improvements or shortening it or you know whatever needs to happen to make it a good practice i think that's kind of yeah. some of the art of it yeah i think i'd rather over plan Yep. Yeah, like Billy was saying, and then be able to tailor it and um, trim it if needed. Yeah, in the same way. We write about deliberate practice in the chapter. Uh, just curious what your guys' thoughts. Is that a framework you guys are thinking about when you're practice planning, especially, I guess, as you look at a season? Uh, I think the common kind of refrain is, you know, you have you set a stretch goal, you focus on that, like, you know, you have that singular focus, and then you get feedback on that focus, and then reflect and refine who wants to take that one uh I'll, I'll start just in kind of honestly throwing it back to you john i like what you write on the top of your whiteboard that practice is a search and that seems pretty opposite of deliberate practice um is that what you have in mind or does, does that feel like like an opposite statement yeah. And, you know, I haven't dove deep enough to it, but I think 
yeah, the ecological framework maybe would question some of the deliberate practice. And we just talked to Jamie Taylor, who's a bit of a skeptic when it comes to a lot of this, like basically borrowing ideas, like deliberate practice, I think came from like musicians and chess players and taking that right. and just assuming full force, it's going to transfer to, you know, a high performance sport environment. Um, but with that being said, I, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot to it. And with all this, like, you got to really look at the nuance within deliberate practice. And, um, but yeah, I think I, I've gone more to, um, yeah, just, yeah, practice as a search and, um, every person might have a little different focus. And, but I think the framework of like more towards one thing than 10 things is probably a better way to learn. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, I think of it as far as the deliberation, deliberate practices in it's purposeful and it's designed to improve performance and not just to get like random touches. Sometimes when I think of like the piano, just, oh, I'm just playing without a kind of, you know, without like really focusing on improving, you know, just kind of having fun. Um, I think, yeah, like our practice is tailored to get, you know, better at certain things. It's not like it's a stretch goal as in, hey, you need to do this on your technique and that's what you're going to focus on today. But we do have like deliberate, like, hey, we're gonna get, try to get better at, you know, passing today or hitting out a system as far as that. So like the games are crafted around like a specific focus. So I guess mm -hmm. it's a similar in that way, at least. Yeah. Nils, you got anything to add? I feel like in a lot of, it depends on the learner and, and how they are and, and what they're trying to do. I feel like the, the idea of practice is a search and at some level, John, I think, especially with, with the level of coaching that, that hopefully we're all engaging in, you're, you're, there's a certain level of mastery that you're trying to seek and trying to find. Um, and I think the deliberate practice piece is somebody for, is, is kind of like a stepping stone into that you know, like the, the high performance. And at some point when you just want to figure out what to do and how, how to do things correctly, that deliberate practice is really, really good. And it can give you direction and focus. And then at some point, once you get to a point of really seeking mastery in something, you probably let go of the deliberate practice and just see what comes and start exploring with, with the space. And I think it has to do with the learner as well. I know there's girls that I'm coaching right now where they're, they're really open to the idea of like different possibilities at different times. And there's other girls where it's like, listen, you have to stay focused on this one thing because your brain is drifting off and, and just literally disappearing and, and you're not even in the gym. So if we can give you this one deliberate thing for you specifically, uh, that'll help keep you here now and focused and, and moving forward. So I think it depends on the, on the type of learner and the type of player a lot. Cool. Yeah, I think something for all of us to continue to question and consider. And I think for a while, it was just that deliberate practice is how you're supposed to practice, at least for me. Um, and yeah, I think there's some valuable stuff there. Okay, moving on to, we touched on it some, so we don't need to overdo it. But just again, we, in the book, we talk about teaching in keys and lots of great coaches do it. And it's been shown to help people learn. So there's lots of benefits. One of the things that stood out as I reread the chapter, we talked about looking at elite players so studying elite players and then forming your keys based on what you're seeing and it made me just kind of stop and think is that the best way to form a key you know if you are say billy or, or any of us coaching a level of athlete that isn't isn't at that elite level does it make sense to have them strive for that or is maybe their ability their the constraints and their their movement is not appropriate for our level so 
what would be your guys' take on that? I think if the keys are able to apply to kind of a large swath of your roster, then there's a benefit there. But like if you're creating keys based on someone who is just athletically superior or older or taller, you know, whatever it may be that sets them apart physically or even mentally from, from the people who you're working with, uh, just trying to be cognizant of that. Uh, it stood out to me a lot with these adult clinics we do. Um, and we have some pretty, um, older players and, you know, at the beginning when I was doing it, we would go through keys and then I'd always get somebody to come up and be like, you know, Hey, you said he's straight in your platform, but I have four, four pins in my elbow and I can't straighten it, you know? And so there, there's like, like, yeah, it just really opened your eyes that there isn't just like, obviously one way to do it. So as far as the keys, I usually use the keys as a secondary thing. So instead of like, Hey, let's start. These are the keys we're going to go down. It becomes, you know, they experiment and then it becomes more of a suggestion at that stage. And as far yeah. as, look, as far as looking at elite players, it's, you know, we say like, Hey, there's no one way to do this. Cause even elite players aren't identical. Um, you know, you take the two best jump servers and you show them in silhouette and you, you can pick out the differences and who they are. Um, but there are, you know, commonalities you'll see across the board between those players. And so it becomes more of a broad, Hey, suggestion this is what a lot of people you know this is what a lot of players do give this a try and it maybe it comes again as a second stage rather than just right off the bat this is what you're all doing and um but yeah like we found that we never say hey you have to do this in order to get the ball to target because there's a lot of ways to to pass a ball and do those skills yeah, it reminded me i learned this from casey Kreider, who i think what i used to do was i'd say yeah look at you know betsy flint look at how she passes do it like that and now I'll have my players say, you know, look at so-and-so, look at Billy Allen, and, and how does he do it differently than you do? So then maybe that, not, not to try to do it like him, but maybe it's giving you a new idea to explore, to consider, versus here's the one way to do it. You know, you've got to do it like they do. Um, so using more, using people as more just new ideas for you to experiment with, um, which is very different than like, here's the key, this is how the right way to do it. But yeah, what about you, Nils? Uh, I think I, I've, I don't know if I've ever used keys as like the right way to, to do them. I try to find those keys with the individual players and like how you're feeling about a certain technique or whatever you're, you're develop. Uh, and then I've actually found that one of the things that seems to have been working, I don't know if there's any science behind this or it's just something that's kind of developed over the years is using those keys as almost, or we frame them as like a safety net. Right. So if you're going out there and you're just having a really good day and you're not thinking about anything, but the ball's doing everything you want and things are going great. It's like, great. Keep, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, but if we can develop these keys, it'll kind of give you a little bit of a safety net. it'll give you some somewhere to go when things aren't going well. You know what I mean? Like I'm not passing well right now. Okay. Well, I know if I think about my feet, like that's going to help. If I, and I want to make sure my feet move the right way. I want to make sure that, you know, my arms are doing the things that I was doing in practice to, to get the performance out of practice. So you kind of have like this safety net where it's like, Oh no, I'm not doing well. What can I do? Okay. Well, you have a few options to think about and, and that, you know, is going to, are going to help you. Uh, and we try to develop those, each player is a little bit different. You know what I mean? I'm not going to say straight elbows. We're going to talk about like some weird analogy that maybe that player came up. Like I'll ask them, what did you feel? How did you feel about that? Um, they'll come up with something, you know, some sort of picture, some sort of analogy for that. And then we'll be hopefully able to reference that 
back in there where they're kind of like, what? I, I feel like something's off. It's like, okay, well, are, are your boards on a string doing well? It's like, oh no, I'm super tense. It's like, great. Okay. Let's try that for, for the next few. And maybe that'll come back. And then I get the, the passing at least feeling like it did in practice uh, to give them that performance. So it's, it's that safety net idea for us. That's yeah. cool that it's their idea and, and um, that you're working with them and letting them create it. Sorry, Billy, what'd you have? Yeah, I was going to say, Neil, the same thing. Like I've had a lot of success, I guess, uh, using the player's language, their own language for their keys and having them help craft. And it's not like, oh, they came up with step number two, so they should do this every time. But yeah, when they stuff is going right you're and you're asking them with curiosity, what did that feel like? And when they kind of paint a picture, then that might be a useful reminder. Like, hey, it was working when you were doing this or maybe, you know, but it's not like it needs to be like locked in stone. Um, but yeah, sometimes right. using their language really helps. Yeah, safety and that's a good word versus like a crutch. I think sometimes they can become, especially maybe when they're more coach driven, it's a crutch. Like, you know, you got to do this to be able to get a kill. Oh, you didn't do that. No, you got to do this. Uh, but having, yeah, more of a cue or I think, yeah, what you said, Nils, the safety net to go to when you're, when you're struggling could be helpful. So I wanted to go to just the structure of a practice. You know, I think the way we wrote about it in the book was you have a warm up, you have a tutor, competition, and then reflection. You know, and then within that, you can create your own sort of activities, activities or games. But first, maybe, you know, our, our favorite topic, the topic that started the show is warm ups. And I think it's maybe the one where you see the most variation within different programs, the way people approach warm ups. So, um, yeah, Fuller, what's your, your approach to a, to a warm up? Not, not just like movement, but, you know, maybe the first ball activities as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll touch on the movement piece just for a moment. Um, our team lifts right before practice. So that helps expedite things and we don't have to do a really lengthy warm up. Um, so we're able to get into ball warm up pretty quickly, which is really nice. And then I think this is a, an area where personally I have found value in honoring the requests of the players. Uh, I think there are a lot of um, strong preferences bordering superstition um, with warm-up and just a feeling of, you know, I just, I got to rep this out. I got to feel this. And I, in the past, I've probably gone the other direction. Like, no, no, you don't need that. You know, you need to get into this and, you know, it's, this is my way. And just being like, you know what? if there are 10 or 15 minutes at the beginning of the session where we can just really give the players kind of like what they're craving to get their feel for the ball or, you know, whatever the, the movements are that they feel like they want to really hammer on, then like, let's do it, you know, let's support that. And, um, and then, you know, if that can be woven in thematically to what, we're, you know, trying to, to focus on for the rest of the session, then, then we'll try and do that as well. What about you, Billy? We'll start with a game and the warm up game is usually, you know, hopefully tied into something that is the big focus for the practice. But I remember we talked to John O'Sullivan about youth soccer coaching and he was mentioning, yeah, start with a fun game. So that one, when that'll, that'll get kids there on time. And, you know, if girls show up late and they're, we're at the whiteboard, you know, there's one thing, but if they're out there scrambling around playing a warm-up game, um, yeah, they want to be there. Our warm-up games, 
um, you know, might have a little progression to them. So they don't come out swinging hundred percent right away. Might be to this score, you know, it's 70% swings or, or whatever it is. Um, so kind of escalate and hopefully it'll get them warm through that. Um, I know on the beach, it's a lot easier. I feel like you can do over that pepper for about a minute and a half and everybody's really warm. Um, but indoor, yeah, maybe go a little longer and then we'll do the whiteboard after that and kind of talk about the, the plans. That's kind of how we do our warm up. Yeah, well, I love Billy, that, oh, sorry. Billy, that's how you start your games too, right? When you're playing, you know, kind of 70% first set and then yeah, we lose the, the first end, set. Hopefully you're hitting hard. I haven't yeah. seen Billy get to above 70 yet. No, it's so funny <laughs> coaching like uh Billy, like Billy and whoever he's been with, like Jeremy or Andy or Stafford, like the guys will warm up just like, yeah, like five minutes. And the girls, it's like an hour and a half of they just gotta get in rhythm and it's, it's such a different approach. Oh yeah. Um, Janelle's always picking my brain for warm-up drills. And it's like, you don't need to spend your first 45 minutes with warm-up drills. Yeah. Yeah. But also when John Honestly, coaches us, just talking about this, I'm like, Oh, sorry, Billy. Oh, when John coaches us, um, I always got like, I kind of feel bad for the team we're practicing with. Cause like we know John's we like, I'm re- I'm there early. I'm ready to get into it. And usually the team we're playing is like, wants to throw and pepper and stretch and maybe play no jump. And John's just like pacing and going, all right, guys, let me know, let me know when you want practice to start (laughs) (laughs) or just jumps them right into like uh, a time game or something. Yeah. I love, I love like a burst. I love shocking people or like just getting out of routines, but, but I want, I was wanted to hit on John Sullivan's, especially for the youth athlete. And I think this is where a lot of, at least for me, I, I see it as like a coaching mistake where there's 10 to 12 year olds or, you know, that, that age range where they're doing stretching, like static stretching and having, having them jog back and forth and just spending the first 20 minutes, like this idea of getting their bodies warm where, yeah, these kids are coming from sitting at school all day, getting, you know, like he talks about like a sugary snack and they're just, they're just like dying to get out and like play and be a kid. And to just start with that, that formats, I think U.S. soccer, uses it. it's called play, practice, play. You start with playing, you know, get the energy out. And then if you want to get into some sort of practice activity, you know, some more slow it down or break something down and then get back to playing. I think it's a great structure for the youth athlete. How about you, Nils? I've been all over the map. I try to keep it somewhat novel. We have a basic like a dynamic warm up that we'll do that takes three minutes. And then I usually just, uh, in the beginning of the uh, season, we had a specific way of warming up our arms, you know, just some intention behind it. Uh, now at this point, I'll just say, you guys have three minutes to warm up your arms, go. And then we're going to get into something after that. And that's that idea of like, just making sure that they, I mean, they, they're swinging a lot, so they do need to get the blood flowing and get the bands out and do what they need just toss it back and forth for, for what. And I feel like three minutes is, totally fine. And then we'll usually start jumping. We'll, we'll, sometimes we'll do a game. Sometimes we'll do a drill right away. Uh, we've actually been regressing into some basic like partner back and forth volleyball moves. How dare you? Which it's been really interesting with this group. Like it's actually been really helpful. I think for them to kind of just feel what it feels like in a block isolation situation. Uh, and then now the conversations when they get into get more game-like stuff, they're the, the light bulbs in the faces are like, Oh, Oh, I felt it that time. You're like, great. Now we can actually start the learning. Whereas I think we, we I started off 
too much all games and trying to teach things through the game. And the, the feedback wasn't enough. They weren't getting enough reps through it. Or if they did get a rep, I wasn't able to catch it or that kind of stuff. So the regression in our practice or in the warmups at least has been somewhat helpful, uh, which goes against a lot of the coaching philosophies that I've had. So it's been an interesting uh, situation to see. We'll move on to the second part we talked about is tutors. Is that something you guys still use? So after warm up, kind of like some small group activities, especially indoors, right? You go from maybe six on six to like outsides or middles on the beach. You can't get much smaller, but um, yeah. Do you guys use this framework of tutoring them? Uh, I haven't used that uh, like terminology, but we'll do like, we only have two courts. So we'll have like a passing crew or yeah, we'll do, we'll do something like that. I just haven't used those terms yet. What do you use? Uh, small groups or positional groups or something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, passers will be over here and we'll split up. We'll do different things. If we're working on hitting, it'll be pins on this court, medals on this court. Um, if we have a passers, sometimes we'll do, uh, we have done joust school where we were at once court, we were working with passers and then everybody else was doing short court jousting just to try to get better at that. And that was joust school. Mm. So not that cool of terminology. I need to increase that terminology or, or make that more entertaining for sure. I mean, I like, I like the language shift from tutor to lab. Uh, I think tutor implies that, you know, there's one way to do it and it's like a math problem and sports are just not the same. And lab is implying, you know, multiple uh, opportunities and options for perhaps accomplishing the same goal. And I think language is really powerful. So if we can, call the game or activity something that is sort of supporting that concept that there are a lot of different ways of doing something then you know hopefully in turn then you're creating an environment where it, there's an acceptance of of different ways of doing things we do call it a lab as well it's our about 15 to 20 minutes it's our only unscored push portion of practice and I think just not scoring it helps, you know, them experiment and try new things. And it's probably the wackiest we get. And then we usually like with the lab theme, like go back to the whiteboard and report our findings and kind of talk a little bit about what they want to take with it or what didn't work and that stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I mean, the lab is what, what I've used too and how that, that shift from, I, it's like the same time frame. I went from warm up. I used to do a tutor and the tutor, the goal was to do you know, the right movement pattern, the right way over and over. And if you ever went off that movement pattern, you know, give feedback, no, you got to do it this way. And now the lab, I'm looking for the opposite. Like, what do they normally do? How do I get as much variability as possible? Like how many different ways can you hit a hard line? Can you do it if you start deep, if you start short? Uh, so it's like the same time frame, same, like I have some sort of skill in mind, but it's like a completely different sort of approach from experimenting or from, you know, tutoring to experimenting. Have you guys run into um, players that like just want to know how to do it right? And the, no, I, just the concept, <laughs> just like that, the concept, the, the first step is like trying to get their minds to open up that exactly like what you were saying, John, like there's not necessarily a right way to do it. There's probably some principles at play that we want to adhere to. Um, but within that, there's a lot of variability in these types of skills in this type of game. And th just that concept is yeah. 
completely foreign to a lot of players. Yeah. No, I think I would have been the same way. Yeah, I think talking about how there, you know, we play a random game. There are no scripts. There's no play that's ever happened twice in a row. And that we want, we don't want repeatability. We want adaptability. We want, if we have a problem, you know, the problem is we're trying to tool the block. We want to be able to do it as many ways as possible in, in as many situations. So we're looking for lots of tools instead of one tool. Um, so try to, I guess, frame it more that way, you know, uh, helps. But I think then when you get in it and you get frustrated and, and you get lost, and that's probably when you're learning the most, like it doesn't feel like you're improving, but you're learning. You want that one answer. You're like, no, what do I have to do to, to answer it? So I think reminding people that you don't see you don't see improvement in the moment. What you're seeing, you know, when you see, you won't see the if the learning showed up for a couple of days to see if it transferred. Like what's going on right now? If it's learning, it's going to be pretty messy and and uncomfortable. And that's right where you want to be. But what the players want is they want performance right there. They want performance. They want it to be clean and neat and to be succeeding over and over. But that's not what practice is for. It's, it's you know, if we just go in and do what we're already good at, we're we're gonna plateau. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really hard, hard part of coaching and hard part of being an athlete is, is like sitting in that zone and being okay with not getting the answer. So we'll move on to the the third part we, we used was competitive games. Uh, yeah, I guess if you're like a typical practice, what, you know, if we did the warm up, we did whatever our lab or tutor, how much are you trying to block off for this part of practice and what are some things you guys are trying to emphasize? Um, we're definitely trying to do a ton of CLA at this point in in training or in practice, or honestly still trying to find a better word than training or practice. Um, the time that we play beach volleyball together in the afternoon. Um, and <laughs> this this episode's been fun because I'm looking at I'm like oh my gosh I'm not saving nearly enough time to be competing at the end like we're just spending so much time in the lab and um, and and in warm up and so I think my what I'm doing and what I want to be doing are probably two different things right now. What is it right now and what do you want? Uh, I think we're like 20 to 30 minutes right now and I probably want to be like 45 plus. And do you think that changes time of year? Like in the preseason, are you more, you know, heavier on the, yeah, the first half? I I guess I'll give myself a little bit of grace right now. Like we're we're trying to explore some concepts that are probably um, refresh for returners and new for for the newcomers. And um, so maybe we're okay. Maybe I'm not too far off base because it's that time of the year. Even though we are competing more in the fall than we have you know the eyes need to be toward april and may and mm. if we're not you know at our competitive peak right now in october like that that's okay so yeah keeping the long game in mind yeah. how about you how about you billy yeah other than the 15 to 20 minutes the lab everything else is competitive games i mean even our warm-ups is a competitive game we have scores and they, they're trying to win um we'll start more small sided and then expand to six on six as practice goes, we'll have more constraints, maybe the first couple um, games after the lab and then get freer and freer towards the end. Um, so they might have some, 
objection, you know, things they're trying to do, like the setters are working on certain stuff during the game. And then by the end, they're a little, a little more free and just focus on winning. What's a, a favorite or a go-to constraint you've used in a competitive game? Um, we'll change the, the scoring a lot. So like, you know, maybe a, a hard swing kill that nobody touches worth two and a stuff blocks worth two, just to get them competing a little more at the net between blockers and hitters. Um, if a setter gets a one-on-one that might is worth more points, you know, so we do a lot of stuff where that, uh, we, we've taken, what's nice is we've had practices with only 10 people, which sometimes is a problem. We're like, oh, we're missing two people. And like, you know, we'll jump in and play, but sometimes we'll just, you know, middle backs out. Um, just, uh, you know, that's the constraint that's out of bounds. And so they don't have a defender there. And so the hitters are forced to hit with more range, um, stuff like that. You ever tried going the other way where you put like five blockers up there, more defenders? Um, I haven't done. I think more... that's against the rules of indoor volleyball. John, <laughs> you've forgotten. Well, yeah, for now. Um, now, yeah, if you can hit, if you can hit around five, you can hit around two. There you go. Yeah, I think when um, my, I mean, I didn't know what the constraint slot approach was, but my senior year at Pepperdine, our offense was, you know, set Rooney, and then if you're in trouble, set Rooney. Um, and so <laughs> I think we had practices. You know, we had some like you know, guys who wouldn't play as much in practice and Marv would just have a couple guys, like anytime the set went to Rooney, like two more guys step in. So there'd be like four block, like four blockers there, no matter what, that's pretty much what he faced every time. Um, so yeah, it was like eight on eight on six, but it didn't, it didn't work. Um, I mean, they couldn't stop him, but it, but it probably, you know, it, he wasn't getting one-on-ones and he wasn't, and he, he'd probably get one-on-ones against our second team if it weren't for those guys jumping in. Nils, how about you? What are you doing? Um, what's your competitive part of practice look like? Yeah, I'm trying to increase it. It's usually about an hour or more, uh, or sometimes less. I mean, uh, I try to make it as much as we can. Today was a lot. It was like over an hour and a half of just competitive. So it was a fast one. And then we got into the competitive game, but we had a bunch of different rotations and lineups that we were playing with, and we had a fast drill. So the girls were fired up on that. Uh, there's been a couple of practices where we didn't, we, we just almost stayed in the lab. Again, we weren't using that terminology, but that's what it was. We stayed in the labs for the entire time because the girls felt like it was really productive. Um, and so we just kind of scrapped the, and it's also your load management with being in season. So there's that to factor in. Um, one of the, yeah. You know, uh, one of the constraints that actually came up. So we've been working on our serves and we were playing a six on six drill and it was just, we were just, you know, basically a game to 25. There's a couple other things going on, but it was game 25, six on six. And the major constraint for that drill was uh, if you miss your seam, the coach is calling a seam for your serve. We just blew the whistle and we wouldn't let him play. Uh, and that that came out of the fact that we were doing a pretty good job in practice of hitting our serves. But then when the girls were getting in games, they were having a really hard time just controlling the emotion and not being stressed out and with the performance anxiety and we were missing serves. We were missing our seams. We were missing all kinds of stuff. And it was like, how do you recreate that, that performance anxiety? And we literally, the coaches had a whistle. And if you called two seam and they hit the three seam, rotate next serve. And it went like watching them kind of go back there and know, like in the past, what we've done is like, okay, you want to, we bonus it. If you hit your seam and you get the point, you get two points. If you hit your seam, you get an extra point, whatever it is. And none of that worked as well as like, if you don't hit your seam, we can't play volleyball. And all of a sudden, let me tell you, they were hitting their seam 
games. It was pretty impressive. And so how was, was the one. transfer to performance? Do you feel like it's, it's paid off in matches? Uh, it, it did actually pay off in matches. A few of the girls were, uh, we actually modified their serves. They were trying to jump float a lot and it was not working. And they learned in that drill that if they just stand there and hit their seams, mm that it was good. And so now they're doing that in games actually that we just, this last game, we ended up losing the match, but one of the girls who was having a really, really hard time with her serve, um, she was just missing like 60%, 70%. She went back. I think she missed 10% ended up with like four or five aces and a bunch of out of system. And all she did was just went from a jump float to a standing float. Was, was the other team, was your team surprised when the other team kept playing, even if you missed your, your alley? <laughs> no. <that's> just... <laughs> yeah. They walk off. Well, it sounds like the constraint um, nudged your player to explore and find a new solution. And the standing float, at least yeah. for now, was a more effective solution. Yeah. So in, in the book, the final part we had was reflection, which I'm realizing, and I think as we do, Coach Your Brain's out 2.0, Billy, when, when we write in it. Um, one piece we didn't, we didn't have was, I think what a lot of us do now, and has become more common, is before the warm-up some sort of mindfulness um so maybe we can go over that real fast are, are you guys doing any pre-body warm-up are you doing any mind warm-up to start your practices i have a story for you on that uh i think if if in order to do that i don't know you guys are probably deeper in your teams but for for me there was a level of trust that wasn't quite there yet for me to open that can of worms with, with the group that I had. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, at some point in the season, I kind of brought the idea up like, Hey, let's do a minute of just breathing. You know what I mean? Like I tell you guys to take a deep breath. And we talked about like why it's important, some of the physiology behind it. So I just got like a headspace one minute deal. It actually, I, I, at the time it felt like it went terrible. Like it almost put the girls to sleep before practice um so we, i didn't bring it up again i was like okay we'll never do that again like it, it or we'll wait for a long time like i'm not going to bring it up with this group again uh but like two weeks later on mon on monday we called it mindfulness monday uh one of the girls was like hey can we do that again that was actually like really nice i'd like to do that again and it was like yeah do you guys want to do that again and the whole team was just like yeah we that would be great actually cool like, oh okay probably so better when cool. it's their idea than your idea that's awesome yeah it was just cool cool what about you Andrew? we do yeah we do uh we take about two minutes um at the beginning and again i've probably mentioned this on other shows but we let them choose up regulation or down regulation and the way that we've talked about this is that there there's a there's kind of a progression of your state of arousal like the bottom would be that you're dead and then next up there is being in a coma and then sleep is a great spot to be in and then drowsy is not alert and calm is great and then panic and stressed you know are not great either and so if you're panicked and stressed you probably need to down regulate and there are ways of breathing to do that pretty simply um and there are ways if you're drowsy to upregulate and get to a, a nice calm and alert state and so we feel that the players should have some autonomy in that and um, choosing if they want to get up or get down and they can just go, we just do two separate groups for the same amount of time. And um, I think there's been a lot of benefit if we ever like forget to do it, the players quickly remind us that we've forgotten and make sure we get into it 
Um, and then we're also doing about three and a half minutes of meditation at the end of practice. Um, got, uh, I was made aware of this little like portable sound bath speaker thing um, that we, we put out there for the team and they freaking love it, really fired up on it. And um, it's something that doesn't involve me saying anything. It's totally like judgment free. It's, and we're not, you know, running them through anything. And I, I think there's, it's really important to create that space between what they've done before practice, whether it's school or a meeting or whatever it may be. And then just creating that, like th that space between pre-practice and now they're, now they're here and an opportunity to not only get their physiology right, but um, I think a lot of the players are really passionate about performing and competing and being at their competitive best. And so we talk about how awareness is cultivated through meditation and how awareness is really like one of the biggest keys for being a mentally tough performer. So not just making it about, I, I think sometimes when we're talking about mindfulness and meditation, it, it's like, how is this helping sport? Like what, what is this doing for me as a competitor? And to, to tie them in and let them know that they are like very closely connected. Being mm -hmm. aware is kind of the crux of being a good competitor. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I think that's helping them. Yeah. Just like kind of, enjoying that it not only feels good and can be very calming and have some positive health benefits from that standpoint, but like, Oh, and, and this is also helping me great at my helping me be great at my craft as well. Reminds me, Peter Haberl say attention is the currency of performance and mm -hmm. you know, through uh, building awareness, you can uh, decide where to put your attention. Um, I'm yeah. curious for your groups pre-practice do you what would you say on average in the percentage of like the low anxiety versus high anxiety which which direction? yeah so if we have let's say we have 18 people out there at a training session um probably four of them are going to do up regulation with me and um 16 of them are going to do down regulation i honestly am not sure if that's like because it's me doing up reg um <laughs> like i i think we should probably do you should some double it. blind testing of yeah. me running down reg and then see everyone do like a mass exodus to the other one <laughs> um yeah 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 i, I don't know i don't know yeah. I, I try not to like interrogate that too much yeah what about you billy at the club level i just hand them the internet and they're they're good smart um, the internet and you've got it all figured out and we'll do just like nils i was a little hesitant to do it and um the little we introduced but i think it's important so we introduced it and gave them some examples and they were yeah they were all about it and they wanted to do more um we you know we only spent a couple minutes doing it because we have to get after it um but then i think just like andrew said tying it into what this has to do with volleyball is huge and here like even like not me telling them but we just say like okay what does this have to do with volleyball and you know some girls throw answers out in ways that i hadn't even thought about either so you know i'm still learning from it um and i think also highlighting it at the end of practice like you know, maybe some examples of you know people overcoming mind states or whatever and then um i think before tournaments too we had a 
you know, once you have that language down, it can be really quick. Um, just kind of go around the circle at a tournament and maybe just say your dominant mind state and, um, you know, be vulnerable with your teammates. And if we found that effective. Yeah, that's great. And I think the importance of what you guys are both saying is making sure to tie, you know, this isn't just an activity where we're sitting in a circle in Kumbaya, but th there's, you know, some connection to performance and some connection and some of your language later in practice is related. I think that's really important. So I know we've, we've probably gone too long on this, but I guess just to close this, this topic, this, you know, chapter, um, what, what do you guys think, how, how do you know if it was a, an effective practice? Like, how do you know it was successful? What, if you're walking this away. This is the mystery of life, John. <laughs> this is one of the big, the big questions. Yeah. Oh. I mean, yeah, maybe maybe you don't know until your next competition to see how much stuff is, there is transfer. Um, some of the signals I look for would be like the players were engaged, they pushed themselves, they tried new things. Um, I didn't talk too much, and it felt like the time flew by. <laughs> the, I think those are really good engagement. They explored, they tried new things, and you didn't talk too much. I think all those principles, and I think you could say this was pretty effective. Yeah. I think when like you, you say it's the end of practice and they're still like, like they're like, wait, what? Really? We're done? I think mm -hmm. that's generally a good sign. That's a great sign. Yeah. What do you think it is? If it shows up in the game in the next competition, <laughs> yeah. usually yeah. now, if you, if you can reference it and be like, hey, remember when you did that in practice? You're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> try, yeah. Try, try to get back to that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's a, it's a real paradox and a really hard, frustrating part of coaching because what I think what I've done for a long time, what a lot of coaches want to see is success in practice. Like everything's going smoothly. We're bouncing balls. Everything looks good. But you know, I think most of us have started to learn that that is not mean learning. Yeah. That's not what, yeah. what us getting better looks like. Usually the, the most effective practices, we don't even realize it. And yeah, we're walking away all probably a little frustrated. And yeah. Uh, so yeah it's a hard thing to put yourself into and yeah it's a real paradox yeah yeah i think that's a good call too john like I, if you haven't gotten just a, a even a little bit of frustration it probably wasn't too good and um if the players haven't yeah felt challenged and frustrated then i uh, might need to to ramp it up yep for sure okay we miss anything um, J John, I guess I could throw it to you. You, I got maybe let's start with the question of how much competitive games do you guys do at LMU? And then I guess if you were running Mila's practice, uh, what would be the percentage of competitive games versus other stuff? Yeah. Uh, I would say I'm pretty consistent with that. And I would say we are, let's see what's yeah. About 30 if it's a two hour practice, about 20 to 30 minutes of um, the lab, which is game-like, but not necessarily, it's not scored and not, I think it's not necessarily competitive. I'd, I'd call it more um, experimental. And then the other hour and a half is competitive. So yeah, we're about, I don't know, what's that percentage? About 60, 70% competitive. Um, for a nine-year-old, I would probably go I don't know. I'm not, I don't know that that area as well, but I'd go 90%. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little like 
tagged or no, I probably yeah, I try to do all of it if possible. What would you do? Uh, yes, yeah, I mean, for sure, similar. Yeah, I think you can always air playing more. Yeah, I mean, I, I just try to get them to come back tomorrow, and I think yeah. if you, if there was a ball out there, and the kids didn't have any coach, they'd go start to play. Yeah. And you know, I think you'd want to mimic like what happens maybe just in nature. <laughs> and, and so that they want to come back again. I think it's maybe harder as a coach to to give feedback when it's a fast-paced game than when it's a slower drill, but there's ways to to you know get your coaching in. Yeah, it's way messier. It's you don't feel as valuable, maybe. But you can create great small-sided games. You could create all sorts of challenges within it. You could put them in. I mean, you can, I don't know, I'm thinking of soccer, you could like move the goals in different spots and change the, just all these different ways that just like we do, like as a kid in the backyard, right? Like, I think you could do all that sort of stuff. And that's where I think a lot of the great Brazilians learned and the, you know, and the constraints changed. There's the different surface and there's walls and, um, yeah. So I think you want to try to mimic that and make it really addicting and make them want to do it a ton. And I think that's, I have a yeah. bunch of parents that aren't too happy with you when you do that though, you know? <laughs> Maybe, maybe, but um, then that probably takes some communicating. But I think if their kids are happy and they want to keep coming to practice, it's a pretty good sign. And I think if you're caring towards their kid and you see them and you connect with them, John's not there to impress the parents. Yeah, ah, there's the myth of the guru. Like, I want to hire this guru who's gonna wave this magic dust and say this one thing, and then they'll know how to, you know, play like Billy Allen. But I just don't think it works that way. So, um, and then we just want to do one last plug for the magic dust that we're selling. Um, Three easy payments. Billy, what's the link for that? <laughs> the internet.com. Andrew Fuller at gmail.com. <laughs> Stanford.edu. Yeah. Uh, but thanks. So we are going through Coach Your Brains Out and coaches. If you guys haven't read it and you want to buy it for your staff, your team, um, you can contact us at Coach Your Brains Out at gmail.com for discounts on bulk orders of that and the internet we should make a magic dust coach your brains out t-shirt <laughs> if, you, if you make it I'll, I'll wear it <laughs>